Guatemala uh, ruined me as a preacher because uh, we didn't, I didn't know that I'd be teaching while I was there except for like a few days before. And we would have multi-hour church services every morning, every afternoon. Um, they'd had a few people come to Christ before we got there. And they were just hungry for the word. And I think we saw nine people baptized and probably close to a dozen people make professions of faith even while we were there and, and come to the Lord. And so it was just a powerful time of almost like we interjected in the middle of somebody else's revival and got to just be, get a little taste of a little, little part of it. Um, but I w- would get to be a part of these uh, multi-hour worship services in the morning and the afternoon. I would teach uh, for what I felt like was an extended period of time, and they would just ask for me to keep going. Uh, and so now I come back to Colorado, and I can already see you looking at your watch, all right? And so I'm just, I'm, I'm ruined, and I'm sorry, all right? Uh, but we are excited to be back, and we're going to jump right back into the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I'll try not to use too many Guatemalan uh, examples today. But if you've got a Bible, uh, flip over to Mark chapter 7, um, starting in verse 24. I want to jog a little bit about what Jacob uh, um, taught you last week. Last week, Jesus is interacting with what is outward of religion versus what is internal that God is doing in the heart. And particularly, it was a difficult passage because it interacted with the Old Testament food laws. There was laws about what was a clean thing to eat and what was an unclean thing to eat. And it's kind of got this throwaway verse uh, inside of that passage last week that thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And an argument that can be made from this passage is that at least one thing Jesus is saying is, is that the food laws didn't have to do as much with bacon as with him declaring unclean things clean by the gospel. And we we see this played out in the dietary laws in the New Testament when Peter is on his roof and a sheet, he has a dream of a sheet coming down from heaven and it's just a bunch of barbecue that a Jew ain't supposed to eat. And he's like, God, I've never had unclean things come into my mouth. And, and then the knock at the door, servants from Cornelius are there saying, come and preach to us. And as a Jew, Peter is like, I got no business going into the home of a Gentile. See, the food and this thing is really about that. It's about something else bigger than just don't eat shrimp. You hear me? And so this is a, a teaching about God getting at the cleanliness of a heart. He's teaching his disciples He's in, to be anticipating the mission's bigger than what you currently think that the mission is. Now, the reason I, I want to jog there is he's preparing them for what will be an actual living example of unclean things being made clean in our passage today. Like, you're going to get to see, he's going to give them a little appetizer He's going to roll out the chips and salsa before the full buffet of the Great Commission. All right? And it's going to be in this Syrophoenician woman. And I I think that a big part of understanding him even going to this region is that he's preparing his disciples to experience something, to believe something, and to be something that they currently are not. Like he's prepping them for the Great Commission. Even though that in his life, he's focused 
almost entirely upon Israel first, he wants them to understand that once this kingdom of God thing breaks out, it's going to go to the whole world. And I just don't think the disciples are prepared for that. Now, so this gets us into maybe uh, preparation. I, I don't know if you, I'm one of the four people that are actually watching the Olympics this year. Uh, I think the ratings have went down, so it's like uh, our house alone. But I, I enjoy watching it because uh, you realize these people live their whole lives preparing for one event. And they get stupid good at like one thing. Right? If you see the gym, gymnast grabbing that bar and flipping around, the older I get, the more unbelievable that looks. <laughs> right? Four somersaults, ten foot in the air, and you landed and your knees just didn't blow out? Like, what is that? Some sort of mutant up there. All right? Or, or like, you watch these guys run, and I, it's been joked about before, but I think it's awesome. What we need is Toby running beside them. All right? Like, you don't know how fast they are because they're only surrounded by other fast people. Do you ever find yourself looking down on the person that gets, like, third from last? You're like, that guy's terrible. You know, you're only faster than 99.99% of the earth. Terrible. Third from last. Go back to whatever country you're from that I don't know the geography of. Right? But they prepare all the stuff. I was watching judo uh, because it's, it's connected to jiu-jitsu and all that. So I was watching the judo. And the girl walks out for the judo competition. She's wearing her stuff, getting ready. And I can just imagine all the pressure of, I've prepared four years for this. And it's like you're thinking of everybody watching you at home, your whole country, and the stress that comes from that. And the judo coach <laughs> grabbed this woman and like shook her and then just pow, pow, like slapped her. And I was like, oh my gosh, they filmed that, you know? And the woman was like, okay, I'm in. And then like she goes out there and like, throws the other woman or whatever and it's just so crazy that she's prepared for all this time but the coach in order to get her in the moment like just get it was a friendly you know what I mean like don't do it to me but to the coach is like don't live out here in the ether you know don't live somewhere else some other time just to kind of like just I mean it was it was stiff enough right like just pow, pow. And then all of a sudden, she's like, okay, I'm here. Like, I'm here. Like, like, she just arrived on the earth. And what was the coach doing? The coach was pulling her away from wherever her mind was, somewhere else. And he's saying, be right here and be right now. Right? He's preparing. And I think Jesus is preparing his disciples and maybe even preparing us to serve God in our generation, to have great faith. And so I, I want to pray, and then let's jump into the ver- first verse. Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. We thank you because we have no rights to come into your throne room. We are alienated from you because of our sin. You have every right, because of our sinfulness, to reject absolutely every one of our prayers. And yet, because of Jesus, we know we're accepted. We know we're heard. We know we're loved. We know we're answered. And so all praise to the name of Jesus, who's made dogs like us sons and daughters.
Father, as we get into this passage today, would you be the pastor, be the teacher? Would you take us out of the ether and from some other place at some other time and from all of our distractions, and would you anchor us right here into your word that we might have great faith and that we might worship you like she worshiped you? God, give a unique spirit of humility here and make uh, me and my brothers and sisters and our friends here humble so that we might know you, that we might follow you, that we might enjoy you. God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Uh, And verse 24, and from there he arose. So he leaves Israel and he's going to go to a Gentile region. He went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. All right, and we're going to have some uh, things up of there. Largely, um, this is a Gentile area, okay, Tyre and Sidon. Historically, if you read, I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth between uh, Matthew 15 and his account of this, which fills in some of the information as well. If you're a house church leader and want some deeper study, uh, please turn there and look at that in your, your spare time. But he says this area of Tyre and Sidon is kind of to the north and uh, west of where Jesus had been ministering in Galilee. If you ever take a trip uh, to Israel, uh, they will most likely take you to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is to the north of that. Um, that's where Peter's great confession, you are the Christ and the Son of the living God, happens there. It's a largely pagan area. Um, Tyre and Sidon was a port city in Phoenicia. And so it had originally been Canaanite. And even in Matthew's account, he will call this woman a Canaanite. If you've played with the Old Testament even a little bit, you understand the hostile nature of the Canaanites to the Israelites. They should have been wiped out by Joshua, so even her existence in some way is problematic and an illustration of God's unfaithfulness to keep his word. So she's a Canaanite, but she lives in Syrophoenicia, which is like a a, a Syria-type place where the Phoenician culture existed on the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre was kind of a little island port that you'll see out, that, that when Alexander the Great in like 4 BC conquered it, he built a siege ramp from land to get out there. He's like, we are not attacking that place with boats. We're going to walk over there. And so they, they built a siege ramp that went out to it. This place was incredibly pagan. And I say that because not only did they have <clears throat> the Canaanite deities like Baal, if you're familiar with that, and the Baal worship, Jezebel was from this region. So in the Old Testament, if you understand even how the book of Revelation will quote Jezebel as the quintessential um, idolatrous spiritual harlot, her origins are this place. So you're talking deep paganism. Then when the Greeks and the Romans conquer it, they introduce their pantheon of gods. And there might be, she might have a mixture, a syncretism of all of the pagan gods of the Greeks and Romans, along with Baal. And this is kind of quintessential for this region. Now, we don't know exactly where it is. It's the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, Jesus might have had to walk up to 100 miles going up and through this region and looping back around. And so, I, like, if I'm a disciple, here's one question that's coming out of my mouth. What are we doing? Right? Like, we got people down in Israel that are open to hearing what we have to say Jesus pushes pause on that and takes his boys, you know, down to Vegas, right? 
And they're going to roll up there. And it's like, what are we doing up here, Jesus? The Jews in the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament, largely misunderstood the scriptures about missions. Missions is not a New Testament idea. It's a biblical idea. God has always been the God of the whole earth. He's just called to himself a covenant people that are distinct from the rest of the world. I'll give you a few passages. Psalm 96, 1 through 3. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Well, you're having that baby, Jenny. We just got to sing some new songs. You got to write some songs for us. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. That's Old Testament. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. There was never a sense in which God's people were supposed to hoard all the truth and the witness about God. They were set up to be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven even in the Old Testament. They were just unfaithful to do that. Furthermore, Jeremiah 1.5, you might actually know this one. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations, not just Israel. You were called to preach, not just to church folk, but to the nations. Here's this verse, and I, I have been chewing on this. This is an unbelievable last verse. I could give you 20 more of these verses from the Old Testament. God destroyed the Egyptians the way that he did so that the whole earth would know of Yahweh's glory. I could go passage after passage. But this verse right here for me has just been crazy. And I want this in the context of your heart as we read through this passage. Isaiah 49.6. If you memorize one verse this week, I, I, just, I would love for you to look at this. Isaiah 49.6. He says, speaking of the Messiah, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's too small a thing. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Isn't that unbelievable? God comes and says of the Messiah that him just saving Israel is too small for his glory. He says, I got to get all the way out to Oxford. You know what I'm saying? Somebody out there going to worship. They don't have internet, but they're going to have gospel, all right? It's too small a thing. God has always been this way. But the disciples, in the context by which Jesus enters into, they had largely said it's better, it's unclean thing to even enter the house of a Gentile. So you don't see a missional zeal to reach these people. I mean, have you ever read the book of Jonah? Like, that's straight up what we're talking about. Okay, so what are, so Jesus, if I'm a disciple, you're taking me to modern, it's modern day Lebanon. Josephus, the early Jewish historian outside the Bible would say, this was Israel's, one of their bitterest rivals. It's OU Texas, Alabama, Auburn. Who is Colorado a rival with? Do we have a rival? Utah. I don't know. California. I don't, I, we're just cool with everybody. It's fine. Just come into our state. Move here. It's fine. All right. We need a rival, people. Look, let's work on that. All right. Um, so they're the bitterest rival. 
Tyre and Sidon, if you're familiar with, Jesus said that if the miracles done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. He comes in and says, that's where we're going. We're going to take a break from this, and I want to prepare you to experience great faith in unexpected places. Now, and uh, continuing verse 24, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know Yet he could not be hidden. I love that about you. You can't, if you got Jesus in the house, you can't keep Jesus hidden. No more if you had the sun inside of a house. People are going to know something bright is inside there. You can't keep Jesus hidden. Verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now here's one basic observation. How did she hear about him? Here's how she heard about him. I appreciate those answers in the back. Uh, somebody opened their stinking mouth. Here, you know, we're going to get to her great faith, but you know where she got to faith at? Somebody opened their mouth. Was it somebody that was down on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? said, he delivered a legion, thousands of demons out of one guy. And maybe she's thinking to herself... If he got thousands of demons coming out into pigs, surely he can do one more demon out of my daughter. Somebody's testifying. Somebody's witnessing. Someone is talking about Jesus like he's better than the best movie that just came out. Here's how people hear about Jesus. Somebody opens their mouth. And that prompts her with the confidence to come to him. Now, let's be honest. More than likely, we could, we could maybe read into this. Jesus was not her first option. She might have went to the temples of Baal or to one of the Greek gods, which even that worship of that may have brought the demonic on her daughter. Who knows how that came about? But she probably, Jesus comes on the scene. She had heard about Jesus, and now she's coming because somebody witnessed Church, my prayer is that you will believe that there are going to be people here worshiping next year because you told a report on Jesus and what he's done in your life. Because you witnessed and you testified to somebody else of what Jesus had done in your life, there's going to be other people worshiping here next year. I want to encourage you to open your mouth and to tell people the great things that God has done for you. Says she had an unclean spirit, and so you can kind of, you can kind of see that this is a little daughter. Now, if we think about humanitarian things that we see moms with children that she can't take care of, it breaks our heart. Even as we went down to Guatemala, uh, so many of the women that we worked with there had come out of sex trafficking or prostitution. Some of them were in utter destitute poverty, where the meal the ministry was given was the only meal they had that day. And to get their kids extra food, they were going up to the trash heap and bring it down. And you want to talk about something that breaks your heart as a parent is to see other parents struggling to feed their kids or to take care of their kids. And is this not pulling at the heartstrings of Jesus? I had the most unusual experience in Guatemala in my life. I had a group of women come up to me in Spanish. And by the way, my Spanish, awful. Um, they come up to me and they were asking, it's like, can you pray for my baby? And I was, I was like, absolutely. 
let's pray for this baby. I got Nancy's help because Nancy's Spanish is real good, all right? So, Nancy, you got to come over here. So we're praying for this, this, this woman. And I was like, where is this baby? It's got a fever. Can you pray? And my, my heart's just breaking. I've had, my kids have had fevers before. I want to pray for this kid. The kid is attached to the woman. <clears throat> and I've done a lot of things in ministry, but I ain't never prayed for a baby while I was breastfeeding at the same time, all right? But your heart breaks for these people. And so you see a mom with her baby, with a sick baby, and we just prayed for these folk. Jesus is being approached by a mom whose daughter needs help. Now here's the tough thing about this passage. The woman, verse 26, was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. We learn from Matthew's account that she was a Canaanite, and she begged him. Her posture is falling at his feet and begging to cast out the daughter. If you read over Matthew's account, we get an interaction with Jesus previous to this interaction. The first interaction is she calls him Lord three different times. Here in Mark is the only time Lord is used in the vocative case through the whole book. He call, she calls him Lord in a way that nobody else does. In Matthew's account, she adds son of David, a messianic title of understanding. And she begs. It says that when she calls upon Jesus in Matthew's account, that Jesus responds to that call with silence. That he doesn't answer her initially. She's coming and she's calling on Jesus as Lord. And Jesus, in Matthew's account, says he answered with silence. And, and I think for some of us that have prayed for things before, have you ever been there before where you've like, you really needed God? And you came and you felt like your prayers were being responded to with silence? Now, I know what the scripture says, that every time we pray in the name of Jesus as believers, things that we don't see begin to work and to move. But have you ever prayed and it seemed like God didn't answer you immediately? He's at silence. Furthermore, when she finally does talk to him and and comes to him, she keeps begging Jesus. She is so persistent. She keeps coming, Jesus, my daughter, Jesus, help me. And, And the disciples get so fed up with her in Matthew's account They tell Jesus to make her leave. Jesus, get rid of this woman that's bothering us. Have you ever read the account of Jesus and the persistent widow? Jesus, she's bothers. Her first interaction with the church is the church doesn't want her there. She has rejection from the disciples. Then when Jesus finally talks to her, I mean... We don't read to, it's a hard saying, isn't it? Like, don't take the children should get their bread first and not the dogs. Here's what Jesus is give, doing with her. Jesus is allowing her to repeat her petition. Or let me put it a different way. His silence is purposeful, not punitive. There is a purpose behind his silence and drawing her out in this way. The same way there is sometimes when God brings you along. He's going to heal her daughter. He has intentions to heal her daughter. But he has intentions as well to put her faith on public broadcast system. He wants the disciples to see the kind of faith that is not die easy. 
We have a culture of people who do not have die-hard faith. They can't handle a challenge. They can't handle silence. They can't handle seasons of being persistent. I will tell you, the prayer warriors I look up to the most are the people who will pray for things for decades. And they know God is faithful. And they've seen answers only after years. We are so die easy in our prayer lives. And Jesus is like, this girl right here is persistent. She's humble. And I'm going to make this, I'm going to put this trophy of grace. I'm going to highlight it. I'm going to allow enough silence and enough space. He's giving her an opportunity to quit. He's given her an opportunity to give up. At the same time, an opportunity to give up and to quit is also a chance to be absolutely relentless. If he doesn't give her space to quit, he also doesn't give her space to prove how persistent her faith is. Man, I don't know if you see it, but it's powerful. He comes to her. And he first responds with silence. Then he allows her to repeat the petition. And then when he actually speaks, can we just say it's a little bit of a hard saying? I say this. A lot of times the diamonds in scripture have hard, crusty rock on the outside. That if you just mine them a little more, you get precious things. And I think this is one of those. It's a hard saying, but there's a diamond underneath this. It's powerful. And we've got to come to this, I I think, same time. I'm not reading into this passage and refuse to do that anachronistically. That is our culture back into this, because I think probably a lot of us who are inundated with intersectionality will think, first and foremost, this is about her being a woman. That Jesus is talking to her like that because she's a woman. You calling her a dog as a woman and we start to trip. Let me tell you the truth. It has very little, if nothing, to do with her being a woman. Jesus exalts women all the time. The first witnesses to the resurrection were women. He allowed Mary to sit at his feet in discipleship while Martha out there like cooking and cleaning and stuff, which would have been inappropriate to allow her a position of discipleship like that. Jesus elevates women all the time. It has virtue. If we take modern feminism and try to fit it back in the scripture, we are eisegetically going to miss what God wants us to exegetically take from the text. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing and what the Bible is concerned with. It's not that she's a woman. The problem is that she's a Gentile. Oh, by the way, unless a couple of the Jews, you're Jewish and you snuck in. That's all the rest of you too. That's the problem with enemies of God is that as Gentile, you are hostile and separated from the covenant of God. You deserve nothing but wrath. The problem is not she's a woman. The problem is she's a Syrophoenician, Canaanite, Gentile. She's a stinking pagan. That's the problem the text is dealing with. But here we are as Americans. We think gender is the most important possible aspect of a human being. And we read passages like this and we've got to force it to goodness gracious. So I'm staying away from the anachronistic look at this text. And I want to hear what the Bible has to say. I, I would argue that clearly this has to do with her being a Gentile. He's highlighting even that context 
because he wants to show the kind of faith that is going to raise out of places like Tyre and Sidon and Durango and Bayfield and Ignacio. Here's what he says to her. Let the children be fed first. I want you to underline that first. It's just too critical. Let the children be fed, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Now, did Jesus just call her a dog? Yes. And it's not even like the good context of like, what up, dog? You know, like, that's not what he's doing. I can't, you can't church it up like that, Joe Dirt, all right? Like, this is, he is calling her a dog. This is a common language that the disciples would have heard taught about Gentiles. The rabbis would have taught it this way. There's two words in Greek for dog used both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. One context for dog is like a mangy, feral animal that traveled in packs. When we were in Guatemala on top of the trash heap, there was like a pack of like nasty, rangy dogs. They would have been the ones that like actually like ate bodies or ate dead things. They were in the trash all the time. Like it was a nasty animal, both in the Old Testament, New Testament, the word whenever it says like a dog returning to its vomit right, is a fool to its folly. That's the word, that's one of the Greek words used for dog. Now that is not the word that Jesus nor Matt here in Mark or is recorded in Matthew uses. He uses a smaller dog version that was, they didn't really have pet animals like you do with the sweater, like that's too much, all right, that's not in the Bible, all right, but what they did have is they had as close as I could say is like a household pet. Like, after you had scraps in the house, they would feed a dog, all right? And Jesus does not use the mangy, feral, wily coyote thing over here. He uses the pet. So it's like you care about the pet, but you care about the children more. Or you, you would feed the pet, but you feed the children first. So he calls her this dog. And, and here's the thing. Is that offensive? Absolutely. If it's not true, she is alienated from God. If she was a child of God and you called her a dog, it would be inaccurate. But she is truly separated from the table of God. It is a true contextual understanding of her standing before God. Now here's the problem. We are told in American culture... That we can never damage someone's self-esteem. They are at, you are a snowflake and you are so special. Right? Right? You, you are, everybody gets a participation trophy because we don't want to damage anybody's self-esteem. We have such a different worldview than, wh than what the Bible is talking about where actually the best thing you can do for people is to be brutally honest with them. So here's the context. Jesus is making sure that everybody, the disciples, her and him, understand the context by which they're going to now see her great faith that Jesus is going to celebrate. Here's, here's what I would put this in my context as being from Oklahoma. He, she, he basically tells the OU Texas football joke, right? Like, how do you get a Texas grad off of your porch? You pay for the pizza, right? Everybody in the room would have understood what that joke was about. And they're like, this is, this is the context. This is where, this is the starting place is that before the covenant of God, you have no rights. You have no rights. 
She doesn't come to Jesus pleading her rights. She comes to Jesus with needs. I get this all the time. People come to me and are like, man, if you prove to me that God exists or prove to me that this stuff, and if I'm convinced, I'll approve of God. Brother, you got it backwards. You best be concerned and careful that God approves of you. God is not on trial. Especially a kind of kangaroo court, your mind's going to cook up. We come to God so often in our prideful and arrogant culture as though God owes me something. She comes with none of that. And she's recorded in Scripture as coming only with needs, begging at the feet of Jesus. Her posture before God is right. The Puritans used to write about this. One of my favorite books that the Puritans ever uh, produced. It's a lot of devotional things called The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is this incredible devotional. Um, I try to give it to men when they get engaged and as a gift. It's a great book. The concept is this. The book, the Puritans were so good at diagnosing their own sinful heart. And they, they understood that he must, I must decrease so that he can increase. So that as I go and I understand that before God I have no rights and am but a worm before him, I can see him more exalted. They would say this, you can see the stars during the daytime if you're at the bottom of a dark well. And the lower you go in understanding your own darkness, the more you can see the brilliance of God's majesty in the stars. See, we go low so that we can see him exalted high. And he comes in and he says, you as a Gentile, you have no right to this table. Notice there's no other table. She's not going another way. There's only one bread, one table, one mediator. If you'll understand this, you'll, it'll make all the sense in the world. Jesus is in a, a Jewish first mode. When he sends out the 72, he tells them not to go to the cities of the Greek, but only the lost tribe of Israel. If you read Romans and Galatians, Galatians is like the short version of Romans you see that this idea of Jew first, then Gentile is central. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for his power of God and salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Jesus in this passage is in Jew first mode. Gentiles are going to get the word at the Great Commission. It's not, listen, it's not Jew only. It's Jew first. Jew first. Here's where she sees this, grace. Doesn't even the dogs get the crumbs from the table? She's acknowledging that God is first going to take the word to his children and his people according to the scriptures. By the way, why is it Jew first? Because God promised to do it that way. And God is incredibly faithful to do things the exact way he said he was going to do them. So if he says to Abraham... Through your people first, all the nations are going to be blessed. You best bet God's going to go through his people and then to the nations. He does Jew first, then Gentile that way because he said he would. You can trust him. She reads into this when he says, he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say Jew only, but Jesus says Jew first. She reads into that. Well, crumbs are coming from the table. Your girl... To quote the famous American theologian Jim Carrey, so you're saying there's a chance. 
right? That's what she's doing. She reads into first the idea of not only and that something's going to fall from this table and it's going to be all mine. Isn't that unbelievable? I mean, is she not persistent? One, she's witty because Jesus kind of throws out this parable and she jumps right into it. I love that. Unbelievably prayerful, reverent, persistent. She comes at Jesus like the Terminator. She will not go away. Right? She reads into the first that, my goodness, she's got a chance. She's got a chance. So her her response is penitent. She's not easily offended. She takes hard truth and she won't quit. Her faith doesn't have an ounce of quit in it. She's humble, she's reverent, she's prayerful, she's persistent. Let me say this. She's everything the Pharisees are not. The scripture says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think that some of us in here are having trouble finding God because we're proud. We're having trouble following God because we're proud. We come entitled, making demands. Instead of on our face begging, needy, having no rights in ourselves. Um, Is your pride getting in the way of you finding and following God? Some of you have had decisions to follow God that you've needed to make for a long time. And you're too proud. You're too proud. Jesus is asking you to do something that would cause humility or humiliation. And you're just not like her. And God gave her to us as an example that by grace you might become like her. There was another widow in Tyre and Sidon in 1 Kings chapter 17 for you that know the Bible. Jesus actually quotes this story in Nazareth when he goes home about how there were many widows during the time of famine of the time of Elijah, but he actually was only sent to a Gentile. And they were so upset about Jesus quoting the story that they wanted to kill him. But literally, it's a widow and involves a child and the prophet coming because Jesus is the better Elijah. Here's the thing. Verse 28. But she answered, Yes, Lord. But yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, faith always leads to confession. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let me just say this. Jesus is pumped about her faith. We can learn in Matthew, he calls it great faith. Which is odd because whenever Jesus is describing faith in people, it's like whether it's the centurion or this woman, it's Gentiles that are most often described as having great, Jesus-astounding kind of faith. Like he's stoked that she has this kind of 
no quit, never give up, persistent kind of faith. He's pumped for her. He's always, throughout the first time she started calling on him, she's always wanted, he's always wanted it to come to this for her. From his silence to his hard sayings, he's always wanted to get her to the place of confession. And Jesus is well pleased to, with a word, heal her daughter. He wanted to heal, but maybe more importantly, he wanted to put her faith on display. Because he's got some disciples watching and they don't get it. He's got some disciples watching. They don't get it yet. Peter and Galatians still going to be tripping. You know what I mean? Like, It's going to be a process for them to really get a hold of. It's like really make disciples of all ethnos, all ethnic groups, all nations. Alright, Jesus, I'll write that down, but I'm not sure about it. I, I, like Hansel and Gretel style, like she follows the crumbs back to Jesus, the bread of life, who died for her, who is going to die for her sins, is going to rise from the grave, and by faith she's going to be saved. The crumbs, I don't know about you, of God's goodness led me to Jesus, the bread of life. And though I think for all of us in here, we would be content with crumbs that fall from God's table, such like if my daughter being sick and getting healed or being messed up with, you know, demonic stuff because she didn't take a nap. Okay, like if she, like if if I got the crumb of my daughter being healed, I'm I'm stoked. I'm content. Amen. But what's awesome is God is not content with giving us crumbs. He's not content with it merely being one daughter healed temporally from the demonic. He wants to prepare a table before us eternally in heaven that is bountiful. You're going to feast with God, not crumbs, but with a bounty. See, while we might be content with crumbs, God's not content just to give crumbs. He gave fully himself. He is the bread from heaven, which was a picture of manna in the Old Testament. Jesus is the better manna who was given to us that our souls might be satisfied. He is given so that us who are dogs might be sons and daughter. Now, 100%, this is unbelievable. Some of us, like prodigal sons, have no right no longer to be called sons. We are like pigs or we are like dogs that if you cast pearls before us or righteous things before us, we would nothing. But what is awesome about the gospel, and I want you to get this if you get nothing else, is that the gospel as we come to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, we are made into sons and daughters. We're made into sons and daughters. In Galatians 3.28, it says there's no longer, when we're in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. That while as we come to Christ, there's Jew first, then Gentile, once we're in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, all are one in Christ Jesus. And we're a family of God all over the earth till the ends of the earth. Amen. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we come to you in faith knowing that we have no right to be your sons and daughters.
but you have declared us who are unclean. You've declared us clean. You've declared us who are dogs and pigs, and you've made us sons and daughters. God, you have given us opportunity to quit and give up, which is the same as saying you gave us a chance to be relentless and persistent. And so, Father, if there's one here who has never been transformed by your gospel, God, would you, even now in their hearts, Holy Spirit, make Jesus real to them. Reveal yourself to them. God, if there's a brother or sister in here that's ready to give up and ready to quit, God, would you give faith to them like this Syrophoenician woman had? The diehard faith that pushes through obstacles in church, pushes through silence and pushes through hard sayings and won't rest content until that faith is at your feet begging. Stir that kind of worship in us. God, um, you are worthy. And so we respond now in worship for all the good things you've done for us. Help us to open our mouths and to testify, even as we sing together now. God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you sing with us?